Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today is our final episode of 2020. It's The Stacks Book Club Conversation of Citizen, an American Lyric by Claudia Ranking. We've brought back author, activist, and podcaster Darnell Moore to help us dissect this book of poetry, essays, and art. There are no spoilers on today's episode. And be sure to listen all the way to the end today to hear our pick for the Stacks Book Club January 2021 read. If you're looking for a way to support this podcast, consider joining the Stacks Pack on Patreon. That's a group of folks who contribute monthly and earn perks like our virtual book club, discounts on merch, and more. They make this show possible, and without them, there would be no The Stacks. If you love Citizen and want to discuss this book with a group of other book nerds, join The Stacks Pack by going to patreon.com slash The Stacks. This week, I'm shouting out some of our newest members of The Stacks Pack, Anne-Marie Vorbach, Andrea Hall, Erica Wilhite, Carmen Martinez, Paula Munoz, Nikki Miller, Christina LeBeau, Alicia, Karen Kipper, and Madison. Thank you all so much. All right, now let's get to this conversation with Darnell Moore about Citizen by Claudia Rankine. All right, everybody, I am back again. It is December, the Stacks Book Club Day. I am joined by the wonderful Darnell Moore, and we are discussing Citizen, an American Lyric by Claudia Rankine. Darnell, welcome back to the Stacks. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be back. I'm really I'm really excited that you're here and I'm really excited to talk about this book for a lot of reasons, um, which we can get into. But we always start with what did you think of the book? And if you've read the book multiple times or anything like that, kind of give us a rundown of your intro relationship to the book. For sure. So um having reading it, like reading it again in 2020 six years after it first appears, right? Um, It was, I I don't know, I still ended up a bit jarred at the reading of it. Precisely because you realize that when this book came out in 2014, the world was at a different, we were at a different place within the context of the U.S., (laughs) a different and similar place than we are now, right? So in 2014, the context is, I'm reading a book as someone who is paying attention to working in the midst of in community with organizers in the movement for Black Lives, right? In the heat of um, the Ferguson uprising, in the heat of the post, all those sort of um, reverberations of Trayvon Martin's um, of murder, um, Renisha McBride, Tamir. I mean, I can go down the list. Right. Um, so I'm reading this book at the time as someone who was attending to the world, attending to Black folks, the the mattering of Black lives, in movement, work with people, writing in media about these things, um, lamenting about all of this. And then here I am in 2020 in the midst of a pandemic um, that is both a pandemic that is a result of COVID and then a pandemic that uh, the president of the American Psychological Association calls a a pandemic of racism. Right. Um, Reading it again, and I'm just still... I'm amazed, haunted by, um, triggered by, uh, just awakened um, that these words have 
taken shape and have made meaning yet again mm. um, in this moment. So I'm, I'm deeply moved by the book. Have some questions about who gets to be understood as um, what uh, among the Blacks, who do we imagine as being centered in our imaginations as those we ought to sort of reserve our care for? So I have some questions around the narrative right. um, and who is in and gets left out. But yet and still, the, the thesis of the book is still very much haunting. That's so interesting because I know that a lot of your, your uh, some of, or some of your story has to do with the movement for Black Lives, which we can talk about more. Sure. Because um, I am interested in kind of the intersection of this work with the actual work out in the world and what that looks like. For me, I had a really different um, relationship with this book. And I almost feel silly saying this because having read it now... I'm confused what my issue was, but when mm. I first, I was given the book in 2017 as a birthday present from like some white girl that I was friends with that I'm not friends with <laughs> okay. anymore. She was like, oh, you're going to love it. And I was like, okay, I'll read it. I didn't pick it up. And until that's probably two- why you didn't, that's probably the first reaction. Yeah, like, I was you like, know when okay. a white person gives you a book about like black yeah. life? Yeah, exactly. I was like, and she is, but she's like, you know, woke. She's a public defender. She's like pretty active. So I wasn't totally put off by her, but I also was like, whatever, I'll get to it. And I picked it up three times between then and when we decided to do the book in November. And I never finished it. I could not get into it. For whatever reason, every time I picked it up, I was like, this is a book of poetry and I'm not into poetry. And I think I had this weird like shutdown. And I picked it up to read it with you and was like, okay, let's see. Like You're going to have to read it now. And I was instantly sucked in. I fucking loved it. I have (laughs) no idea. Like truly, I cannot figure out what the block was because I found my bookmark on page 25, which is the furthest that I got into the book. And I Mm. remember where I was. I was giving blood at the children's hospital in Los Angeles. And I remember sitting there like in the chair being like, oh, I'll be able to read this book while I give my blood. And I got to page 25 and started like reading apple juice labels or something. (laughs) But this time I read it, I loved it. And then today before recording, I just listened to the audiobook and I loved it again. Like, so I don't know. I think you hinted at it though. I think what you said was so telling that there is, it's interesting how the book has been praised as a nonfiction um, work that, a nonfiction work in specific, in particular, right? Right. right. Um, but it is, it's, a, it's poetry or even though some folk have sort of defined it as something that is sort of gender I mean, genre indeterminate, right? Like it's sort of defined um, genre. But I think there is something about um, poetry that that I don't know why, (laughs) (laughs) but for a larger public, it often is, um, and I'm speaking in generalizations here and I could be totally wrong, but there's a way that folk are often afraid of poetry, are turned off by poetry, or don't see poetry as an open door, as an invitation in. Right. Um, and and I'm even if even if like I don't know that it does it, regardless of the sort of type of poetry it is, there is a way that I often picked up poetry books so like along the way I was like, oh this isn't for me. Or, I can't yeah. I don't have access into this sort of right. world. Um, but it's interesting that what happens is to me, it felt like you, you, you sort of took the, you, you accepted that invitation um, yeah. in ways that I don't know if I've always, always have. Although I would say that a lot of the people that, that have taught me the most have been like black queer poets, <laughs> black yeah. lesbian women poets, black gay poets, um, in spite of the ways that I may have been resistant to poetry sort of impact. Yeah. I, yeah. I definitely think that the poetry part of it, I am, I mean, we did a whole episode a few years ago with a poet about, um, Intazake Shange's, uh, Wild Beauty. That was like a book club uh, pick. And I mean, we talked a ton about like how poetry can be really difficult because there's, you know, a presumption that it's high art or that you're not, that you're not going to get it. Like that your, your entry point, at least for me is like, you've already failed when you start, you know, and it's like, okay, this is hard. And then maybe you'll do okay. And we talked a lot about that. And we also talked a lot about how with poetry, you know, one, if you like a third of the poems in a collection, that's an A plus collection, you know, that like poetry (laughs) doesn't necessarily have to be, you don't have to like a hundred percent of it the first time you read it or every time you read it, that poems can change and your relationship to them can change. And of course it makes sense. 
when someone explains it to you and, you know, she teaches poetry and she is a poet. And so she was like making me feel good about being a Luddite or whatever. <laughs> but I definitely still carry that with me when I approach poetry mm. that I'm like, I'm already failing before I start. So I do think that that's part of the reason that I had a hard time getting into Citizen because I even remember thinking when I first picked it up, I don't understand this. And then when I picked mm. it up this time, I was like, what did I not understand? Like, For sure. It, like I had clearly created something that this book wasn't. That mm. being said, in the reading of it this time, I just thought it was incredible. I really felt seen and understood in ways that I hadn't felt in reading, especially in reading about quote unquote race or racism mm. or, you know, violence against black people, these, these ideas that people are all now reading about in the last six months. Yes. Usually they feel so directed towards the white audience. And this felt directed at some points towards a white audience, but I felt like she was saying on my behalf these things mm. to white people as opposed to like explaining something that I already knew to me and white people who don't get it, which is sort of a minor distinction, but to me felt like revolutionary in the reading, if that For makes sure. sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, let's talk about what you said that you had questions about. I'm super curious about, <laughs> about who gets to be seen and understood because I, cause in the book she uses the word you a lot. Yeah. She just, <laughs> yeah, you and I, and that's literally the next thing I have on my outline, uh, is the use of you and I in the writing and feeling seen and unseen. And, and I'm curious about your thoughts. And then I have other thoughts. You know, in general, if it's so this, you know, the book is, it is a lyric, it's an American lyric, right? It is, um, a provocation of emotion it is which is what sort of lyrical poetry is 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 intended to do um often from the sort of standpoint of the person who is a lyricist right like here's a person that is giving us that feels um that is that is a t trying to and doing a good job at inviting us into the worlds the interior lives of the black person the black character in the that shows up in the poem this sort of uh the voice that's speaking, even given us an invitation to, to figure out if that voice is the Black voice or not, right? Like there's right. all of this. Um, but what I'm always thinking about when it comes to sort of the litanies of, of, of anti-Black violence, you know, there's ways that, of course, men, I'm one, cis men, Black cis men, straight men particularly, I'm not, are often centered um, as the as the site of violence as a site also of inspiration, as the site of our investigation, as a site of our love. Mm. And I read the whole thing looking for the trans sister, <laughs> looking for the trans body, looking for, um, and, and they may very well be there. Right. But not in the same way in which, you know, a name like Mike Brown, when it's a vote, it's very clear about right. what we are offering our, our and, and, I'm, and, and let me be clear what I'm saying. I am not saying it is not, we have, we can't invoke those names. Right. But in the litany of names, I don't hear, I don't hear the names of trans um, women who might be killed by a type of violence happening at the same time. Or trans people who might be killed by police. I don't, I don't, I don't hear, um, you know, or, or catch the echoes of, of um, I'm looking at a book called American Hate, interestingly enough, and that American hate can look like anti-Black violence that is coming from vigilantes and the police, but it can also look like our queer folk being deadened. Some of the, some of the Blacks are queer and trans too. So I read the book uh, thinking about how when Black life, when Black movements, when anti-Black racism, when police violence, when law enforcement violence, when... Um, you know, the, when these things show up in literature, how often it is a case it's organized around the lives of straight folk, mostly men. Mm -hmm. um, and there's even one page as a, let me try to find it, where it's a list that begins to disappear in a yes, page, which is sort of Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> page 134. And I looked at the list, wanting to look to find the names. So there are women there, thank God, because we typically don't even see black women. Um, right. who show up in these lists of the, of the Black dead who have been taken from us. So we do see Black um, women. But I wonder, like, in the, in the, if, you're, if you're hearing me, 
what I, let me explain what this list looks like. It says in memory of, and it lists a bunch of names and the font color begins to lighten as you get down to the bottom such that um, the names become invisible. I read queer and trans lives in the invisibility. Mm. And often is the case that I want those names to show up as the black lives too, that are taken, that are also subsumed under anti-black racism in the U.S. context um, and targeted right. and targeted. So that was one of the questions that came to mind as I read. Yeah. I mean, just a little note on this page on 134. So as I said, I listened to the audiobook today, I mean, like an hour ago. And when they read, when the reader reads through this list, they only read the first four or five names and then just start going straight to in memory of, in memory of, in memory of. So when I listened, I thought it's so interesting because I, I'm shocked that there's no women on this list, mm. let alone no queer or trans, but just in the reading of it, there was an erasure and it's not, I mean, it's missing. And so now it's making me want to reread the book and see what was changed again from the reading mm -hmm. and the listening. But I, I hear what you're saying. And I think, I think that it's right to, to question who we leave out when we tell the story of quote unquote blackness or black experience or black violence. And especially uh, it, it, it's, 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 the subtitle is an American lyric. Right. So let's run with that. Right. Like in, in this sort of lyric, in this song <laughs> um, about sort of the citizen, about the black subject, the black person living within the context of the U.S., who gets to be, who gets to play that role in our imaginations? Who do we tend to um, center? Uh, we know, we know as it relates to sort of movement history that we've been unsocialized to believe that, say, civil rights movement, Black power movement, um, movements in between, the various iterations of movements that happened before that have all been organized by Black cisgender straight men. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. We know that's not true. Right. <laughs> right. So I guess what I'm saying is, you know, um, it, it's a question that I see as a, as a loving critique, or, or at least... Maybe the maybe the answer is present in the invisibility. Maybe in that when, when we're hearing, you know, those four names, maybe that is actually a really prescient way. I'm I'm assuming I'm gonna offer a positive reading right. here sure. of the of the person saying like, oh, there are people that we also invisibilize in this narrative mm -hmm. of both black progress um, and anti-black violence that we also attend to. That's an alternative way of reading it, right? Right. Right. Um, and, and that's sort of what I what I did, but I, I'm I'm questioning again, you know, the book, the cover of the book, which we're probably going to talk about, is a you know there's a, a cover by David Hammer, whose work is uh, is a, sort of a sculpture from 19 early 90s, right? I think it's like 93. Um, and I imagine that you know there's this hood on the front if you if you all don't have the book, and it's a, right. it's a sort of white background, and this um, I'm assuming it's sort of a black or dark gray hood. There is no face, right? You just see the hood that is sort of disembodied. And that hood can represent a lot of things. It's, it's, a, it's representing sort of the haunting nature of the specter of lynching, the, um, the sort of deadly hand of anti-Black violence and how it can disappear bodies, right, from this plane, from this earth, from people's families and rip you apart. I mean, we get it. And as I read that as a queer, a black queer person who's living under the same white supremacist capital heteropatriarchy that all the, everybody else living under, mm -hmm. I'm also looking at that and going, I know that some of my folks, some of my elders could very well be, uh, you know, embodied in that hood. Mm -hmm. And some of them were queer. Mm -hmm. Some of them were taken from, taken from us because of HIV. Some of them were taken from us um, because of the sort of violence of the, the you know the theological violent uh, sort of ideas that they were led to believe they had to to to, to appeal to and if they didn't couldn't you know be seen as worthy and they took their life so for me I guess my reading of it is I'm re I'm rereading into the book the invisibilized mm. now what I ask of the author is you know how might we better bring to the surface ghosts those right. bodies that are often left out of this conversation right and also no one should have to read the invisible because if that's not something that you're thinking about, then those people are left invisible. Like that's mm -hmm. something that's on the front of your mind and the top of your mind because of the work that you are and because the person that you are and that those are, 
you know, that some of the, some of the people that are missing or invisibilized in this book intersect with some of your identities and with the work that you do, like the being seen podcast. I mean, I think that that's very clear. You're very clearly saying, let's not be invisible. Let's be seen. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's something that that's the work that you're doing when you read this. But for a lot of people, the work that you're doing is, has been rendered invisibilized until someone like you comes along. So you know, I hear what you're saying, like in your generous reading of it, I hear that you're saying like, I'm trying to find and create space for, for certain groups of people who have been pushed to the margins. But I also feel like, you know, the flip of that is like, that's not really fair either, because we all know that black trans women are being murdered at a rate that is, you know, yes, double of what, you know, blacks is, you know, whatever it is, I don't know the actual rate, but I think like your generous reading is, is, generous for sure. And and I, I love that that's how your brain works. And then the part of me is also like, yeah, but we should just, if you want us to see an American lyric, then it should include all types of Americans, all types of Black Americans. Um, and, you know, I also in 2014, I, yes. I don't feel yeah. like, at, at least I don't remember, and probably a lot of it has to do with my own, where I was in my own place, but I don't remember Black trans folks being um, invoked really very much at all in the conversation, if not just a teeny, tiny, tiny bit in the bigger public, you know, like, like it was like being whispered about, but maybe not like. And they, and they weren't, and I want to be, I want to, uh, you know, and again, I, I do believe in critical generosity. I want to also state too, that, um, I'm reading, I'm reading into this an assumption. I can't assume that everybody still on that list identifies as straight. Right, 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 right. right I don't know their life was. I'm just talking about, you know, right, uh, in yes. ways that people self-identify. And not just uh, Claudia ranking, but also sort exactly. of the bigger conversation. Yeah, the bigger around. conversation. The And, you know, let's let's not, I don't want to even assume that the the characters that I represented in the book, right? Like the particular um, subjects that, that right. I speak in, the voices that I speak in are all straight. I, I just don't want to, that's right. also an assumption that can be read of into course. it. Of course, um, but like I, and yet, and yet with that, um, there is such a profound um, way in which this book that I, and I probably didn't even, and like you, had a deeper appreciation for it in my reading now, though I was stunned and, and sort of captivated in the first time. Like the, it is a, such a wild display in the best way possible of private public emotion. Of like, it is, it's sort of like just on this, it's on the page. It's like, we are invited into sort of a blues experience. We are invited into, um, you know, and in some ways it's sort of jazz experience where there is this um, improvisational, not only is the sort of text in terms of how it's organized improvisational, but the movement between emotions and what the person and what the audience is being, um, what you're, what you're feeling. Um, I was reading, cause you know, I'm a nerd. So like, mm-hmm. I like to, you know, I, I, I believe like critically reading the text is to sort of see what is, I had a teacher, um, Mark Taylor, who said, you know, when you're, when you're reading a text or is, you know, you're looking to, to critique a text, you have to look at, what is in the text, that is sort of what is written, what's behind the text, that is what the social world is, the cultural world, the landscape of the world is, and what's in front of it, that is the reader and what context you bring to it. And anyway, oh, with that said, so like I'm reading this, I went back to it, I was like, I've got to talk to Tracy about Citizen, let me see what's happening. <laughs> so, you know, we have this the context, it's a book that comes into being in 2014, we know what's happening sort of in, in, in Black life, the right. emergence of Black Lives Matter, we have a Black president. Um, we have this sort of litany of Black folk being killed, some of whom, some of those Black folk were were women, some of those Black folk were trans, so we have that. Um, and then we're rereading it in sort of, in this sort of re- emerge of the world. But the interesting thing in, t- in form, I went back and started looking at reviews, and um, Evie Shockley, who I love and adore um, and have a deep respect for, was part of a symposium with like Roderick Ferdinand and some others in the LA Review of Books. And when mentioning... Um, one of poets who sort of had a take on the book, Ruth Allen Kosher, she said that the sort of book has like a genre indeterminacy. And I love that because, you know, this goes back to your point. Well, is it poetry? Is it not right. poetry? Is this right. narrative? Like, what the fuck do we read? Like, what, what right. do we read? And I'm kind of like, so in so many ways, the form of the book is queer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. it, the form of the book is actually queer, which invites us, I think, invites us as a as readers to think right. about the indeterminacy uh, or at least the sort of to, to make make less rigid the ways, not only we think about, you know, the ways we think about genre, which is what we, you and I talked about, poetry, not poetry, but also the ways we think about Black life. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The ways we think about Black life. Right. Anyway, I could go on and on. This is, you got me yeah. nerding out right now. No, I love it. Wait, okay, I want to, I do want to ask you about the use of the you and the sure. I, because especially in the beginning of the book, it kind of starts with these little, I don't know, vignettes or anecdotes from her or your life. I, in my reading, I assumed that you was Claudia Rankin, right? Like that she was telling stories sure. from her experience. So mm. whether it was the person saying, oh yeah, my son didn't get into that really fancy school because of affirmative action or the cash, <laughs> the cashier asking the you if they if they thought their card was going to work or whatever those little you moments were but the other part of me was like oh she's talking about things that have happened to me specifically because i've experienced these things yes. as a black person but then that led me to wonder what does the you do to the white reader ah that's so good it's so good because you know it's in like in, in a lot of my readings i would read it as if this as if the you, as if um, the voice was the author's voice. Right. But you're also invited to play around with that because right. then I'm like, oh, that's me. Or that's, you know, that's such and such I worked with who told me that fuck story about her boss. Right. You know? And and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of folk who've been writing about the you and the I. And if you talked about indeterminacy, how it sort of left open a bit. And that goes back to, I think, one of... Um, Claudia Rankin's central questions around, um, I was, you know, like there's a sort of way in which she responds to when she's asked about like, how do we come to know about race? Or how do we come to know about racism? That's the sort of like question mark that she has. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And and, and I'm, I think that's sort of playing into that. <laughs> but in some ways I, I kind of, uh, you know, I'm about to read, to read this quote from Jim Jordan because I have some pushbacks against that, which leads, which kind of connects with my, because I'm, I'm like, actually, I do know, like this whole book, right, is sort of a testament that black people know about the workings of anti-black racism yes. and actually about whiteness, even if white people don't know about whiteness. Right. Right. Well, right. I mean, that's like the thing that I feel like all I always say, and I don't know where I got it from, but black people know more about white people than white people know about themselves. I mean, you're, this, you're, you're very bald one here. Hold on one second. <laughs> but I love this question. I like, what do you like? So what happens if the white person finds himself in you? Which is why when you said a white person gave you the book, it almost makes you go, oh, like, did you read right. that? And you thought that yeah, was like, you thought that shit was about you? you right. Know, like, right. <laughs> Like, cause it's like, it almost endears the white reader to like, it's like, you know what it is? Okay. This is, I think I'm finally going to have the opportunity to talk a little bit of shit about Hamilton because I sort of hate Hamilton for a lot of reasons. I was a theater major, so I have a lot of theater critiques about it. But one of the things that I really think that people don't never talked enough about with Hamilton is that what the show does is it allows the rich white audience who could afford to see the show so before the Mm. or before it went on disney or whatever it allowed those people to relate to and to empathize with the bad slave owners and founders of racism in america Mm. because they were able to say oh immigrants we get the job done and we see these black and brown bodies and so we know that we're good liberals because we like the show and we're listening to hip-hop and it's super fun as opposed to having them question what does it mean to be rooting for Thomas Jefferson in this way? And so that's sort of what I feel like the you does in this book, possibly for white readers, where it lets you feel like, oh, I get it because it's me. It's my experience too. I get to wear this experience. And that, I don't know, cloaking of the white mind in the black experience or like the using of black experience to kind of, I don't know, let white people off the hook in certain mm. ways always really makes me frustrated and like, <laughs> I love that. But you know, one of the things I did like as a device is that there is a way that, um, 
say I'm a white reader and I, I'm reading this, there's a way that I think Claude, Claudia Rankin cleverly yes. invites that as it is actually making space for that. Right. And if I were a white reader, what you find in that most of these sort of passages are these points in the book, you find yourself at a point in which you begin, you have to ask a certain amount of questions right. because I may be like, you're reading it and you're like, oh shit, that's me. First paragraph, second paragraph. Damn, I, so, I fucks with this too. That's me. Third paragraph. Oh, but clearly this wasn't about me because right. Right. <laughs> that last that sentence says, you almost assume, you assume she thinks she's thanking you for letting her cheat and feels better cheating from any, um, from, uh, from an almost white person. Anyway, point is, I think at some points in these readings. She checks the audience. Yes, yes, you get I'd, checked I, like yes, fuck. She does. <laughs> I want to give her full credit for that because in Hamilton, they don't do that. And I don't want to compare these two things because I think that she's working on a level that is like 20 times above what Lynn is working through. Whatever. I know everybody loves Lynn. Cancel me. I don't care. Um, but I, I think that the... I think that she pulls it off. I think she pulls oh, yes. off the thing where it's like you allow the white person to feel comfortable in? that they're like, a, they're the good guy. And then all of a sudden she's like, yoink. And she rips that shit off and she's like, no, 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 no. Like you don't get to be safe in this experience. You don't yes. get to wear this experience and feel like you now get it. I just like, just, and I'm, you know, it's harder for people to get this unless you like hear it. But there is this, um, I'm just going to pick something on page seven, a passage that's sitting across the page from a photo um, of a neighborhood. It's like the suburban street. And there's a sign on it, the sign, uh, it's street sign at reach Jim Crow Avenue. So this is Michael David Murphy's photo. Um, and the name of the photo is called Jim Crow Road. It's a photo from his two, 2007 work, and it's in like invoking a neighborhood in Georgia. Anyway, so that's the image. And then you read. So say I'm a white person. Certain moments send adrenaline to the heart, dry out the tongue, and clog the lungs. Like thunder, they drown you in sound. No. Like lightning, they strike you across the larynx. Cough. After it happened, I was at a loss for words. Haven't you said this to yourself? Haven't you said this to a close friend? who early in your friendship, when distracted, would call you by the name of her Black housekeeper. You assumed you two were the only Black people in her life. Especially she stopped doing, eventually she stopped doing this, though she never acknowledged her slippage. And you never called her on it. Why not? Not yet. And yet you don't forget. If this were a domestic tragedy, and it might well be, this would be your fatal flaw, your memory, vessel of your feelings. Do you feel hurt because it's the all Black people look the same moment? Are because you are being confused with another after being so close to this <laughs> to this other. Anyway, so like that's another moment where like even if I am reading gratuitously, right, and I'm reading myself and I'm like, oh shit, like oh I had this experience. She like checks your ass, mm-hmm. like no you didn't. Mm-mm. Oh, you may have had this experience, but not in this position, right? Or you may have had this <laughs> may experience have... and you still did the wrong thing, like. You may, or you may have been in this experience, but you weren't in it as a protagonist, right? right? Like you may have been. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and right, I love right. that. I do love that. Yeah. Um, I agree. <sighs> it's just, it's so, I mean, like the way, I, I, I guess, I mean, we haven't even talked about the fact that there's a bunch of art in this book. There's a bunch of yes. artwork throughout the book, which of course um, I did not get when I list, re-listened to it on the audiobook, and none of you are getting if you're listening to us talk about it. So you have to actually get the physical book. It's very rare <laughs> that I'm like, you must get the physical book. You cannot do audio, but I mean, you can do audio, but it just it's miss it's lacking a huge part mm-hmm. of the book. Just like this book is sort of poetry and maybe essay, it's also artwork. It's also visual artwork. Yeah. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But 
don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of the Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, we we have to talk about the Serena Williams section because yes, the Serena Williams section to me is my favorite part of the book so far. It's everything. It's, it's so, so good. good. And the thing that's wild, which of course, I, I mean, I guess this speaks to the whole book, is like she wrote this in 2014 and yet <laughs> the shit is still the same, right? Like it's true for the part where she talks about, you know, the different the different black people who were who were murdered, right? Of course. But yes. it's also true for Serena Williams, who still somehow miraculously is playing tennis at such a high level and is still being cheated out of victories and is still being condemned and judged and talked down to about her up yeah. displays of emotion. And I mean, so the first incident in the book is at the 2004 um, U.S. Open. And just anecdotally, I started dating my now husband in 2010 and I never watched tennis before, like a little bit, but not really. And so when I started watching tennis, um, I did not know the history of this Serena Williams stuff. And I have been watching Mm. more actively since 2010. And like now I don't ever miss when she plays and I actually really like tennis. But reading this, I did not know the history of her career and the two, the 2004 and 2009 incidents where she was basically cheated out of wins. So when these things happened again more recently, I didn't know that history. And I was like, oh my God, this is so crazy that the same shit almost 20 years later is still happening to her. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, basically she's had multiple instances where line mm. judges or chair judges in tennis have called... Um, it sounds like in 2004, pretty egregious calls against her that were not. Um, and then yep. she had a foot fault situation in 2009 against Kim Kleister. Um, and and the book is talking about the the anger or the rage in which yes. to be to be a successful artist is sort of how it's presented. It's sort of presented with this this idea that you have to tap into the rage. And what Claudia Ranking is talking about is not it. So often we're the world becomes obsessed with the rage that's being projected as a performance and not with the thing that has caused the rage. And I just, I don't know. It makes my head kind of spin and also makes my stomach kind of hurt and sort of makes me feel sick because I I can't speak for you or any other black person, but I, I have to assume that every black person in America of a certain age has had an experience where you are reprimanded or belittled or um, called into question or or whatever because of your quote unquote rage or emotion, but the thing that provoked it was not. And like, Listen. I, I mean, right? 
I can't speak it's, for everybody, no. but I feel confident that I maybe I can on this one. <laughs> I want to say this, that this was one of the most moving aspects of this text for me. Mm-hmm. One, because of the overwhelming um, love present in this text mm-hmm. from Claudia Rankin to Serena, from Black woman to Black woman. I mean, there's a question that she asked in a writing, what does a victorious or defeated Black woman's body in a historically white space look like? Mm. Yes, Black folk have had this experience where um, rage, right, becomes, you know, one, in the context of the U.S., we don't get to rage, right. you know, and because, you know, rage would make us, we one, because, you know, we are human persons, and even though that's denied, um, it had been denied, but we don't get to rage. I was recently doing a book reading um, with a group reading Brittany Cooper's Eloquent Rage, and a question that I asked the group was, well, who gets to rage and why? Whose rage is seen as acceptable and why? Whose rage is policed, not just ideologically, but literally, who will we call the police on? Mm-hmm. if we, e- Even if they assert any type of rational, emotional feeling like anger or rage, et cetera, and in this case, you know, there's also a line where she pretty much says something like um, a black woman being thrown to, I think, like a white background. Yeah. Like, so you have Serena Williams in the midst of this sort of like white streamed space um, and who is policed, who's policed. And, and yes, black people experience this, but I want to be specific to why it was important that she centered on Serena Williams. Because Black women, in the same way that um, Brittany Cooper's write about um, eloquent rage, in the same way that so many Black feminists before her have talked about the very particular ways that Black women um, are not only policed, but violated, are, are, are violences and acted upon them um, because of the, this presumption of, um, of rage is something that we have to just, that we have to talk about. I mean, who gets called the B word when they are asserting themselves? Mm-hmm. You know, who gets shut out of the public conversation if they're too loud? Mm-hmm. You know, we got Monique Morris who doing work on little black girls getting suspended in schools um, because they're showing up as like too fast or have too much mouth and are showing up statistically as being um, pushed out of schools and suspended in schools in ways that their, their male counterparts are not, whether white or black. So that's a very particular way within the context of the U.S. context that Black girls and women, femme-identified peoples, rage uh, humanities are actually policed. Um, That is just not the same for everybody else. And the last thing, you know, there's a, she makes mention of Mama's Baby, Mama's Maybe, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe by Horton Spillers, which is sort of a pivotal text by a Black feminist scholar whose work in that text was all about um, the ungendering of black women in the in the American context, right. in the U.S. chair of slavery context. In other words, you know, to be black woman, to be marked as a black woman in this context, were to were to be seen as not even women, mm-hmm. to to be seen as ungendered, as a thing, to be sort of controlled. Right. And that just that nod to that article in that work was actually hinting to the fact of the of the project of sort of like black women showing up in the context of the US as ungendered bodies as things to be controlled to be manipulated um and to be violated like Sandra Bland right, right. like if you if you show up and speak back right um so that essay moved me so my y'all I'm going off because like I read that shit and I'm just like every time I read it mm-hmm. um it just makes me so upset and also it breaks my heart open so wide for black girls women and femme folk it just, it just, it like, if, if you don't need another example of how patriarchy and misogyny is realized, misogynoir, like as Moya Bailey would say, right? Realized in the lives of Black women and girls. Read that essay. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other part about it that I think is really just like, because personally, you know, I'm a woman, I'm a Black woman who loves sports. I am a really huge sports fan and and Serena Williams is one of the greatest athletes of our time male female period, period. <laughs> human she is one of the best period and one of the things that i think that is overlooked about her that is so that hurts me like makes me emotional is her joy 
she is so i'm like crying she's so every time we see her anywhere not on the mm-hmm. court and even on the court when she walks out when she comes out when she sea walks at, at wimbledon whatever that is right she there i mean with beyonce like with her daughter and she's robbed of that part of herself publicly in a way mm-hmm. that other athletes are not you know mm-hmm. like even you know like we people love to hate LeBron James, myself included as an athlete. I love LeBron as a person, but I hate LeBron as an athlete. (laughs) But we get a sense of LeBron as a human, right? We understand when LeBron is mad versus when LeBron is happy. We get to see him as a father. We get to see his joy. He's doing the Space Jam thing. Like he gets to be this full human. And he is as great an athlete, maybe not quite as great, as Serena Williams. And we don't ever get to see that part of her. She only is someone that we, unless you seek it out, right? Unless you're like, oh, Mm -hmm. I love Serena. Let me follow her on Instagram. Like, unless Mm -hmm. she's writing that narrative. But even with this, even with the stuff with Serena, um, and she brings it up in the book about John McEnroe, if you're not a tennis person, which I wasn't, but now I understand it. John McEnroe is famous, famous for being an angry asshole yeah. on and off the court that is his personality right. like he is known for being that and, and his brand that's his whole brand i mean like it was literally him and what's it berg borg uh anyways those two guys and they always went head to head and he was like the showy cocky asshole angry jerk and his whole brand and all of his money and everything about him comes from that personality and for him to critique Serena and, or for him to comment on Serena's emotion, knowing full Mm. damn well that if those types of things had happened to him, if he were in the situation that she had been put in time and time again, he would have done five times as much and it would have been applauded, you know? And like, I know, and I know that that's the story of America and I know that's what it means to be a black woman in America. And I know it on an intellectual level, but when you read it and you see it and someone says it to you and someone makes, makes me have to face it, it, it's painful. Like that is hard. It it really makes my stomach hurt. I feel nauseous because it's like you're being forced to acknowledge something that you kind of would rather just not deal with because it's hard to deal with. Right. And isn't, and isn't that what, and that's precisely what books aim. Right. Right. It, it literally, what you just spoke about is an American lyric. Right. And in that lyric is the experience of Serena as a black woman, you know, who is hit at all fronts within, you know, a white supremacist patriarchal culture and that does not exclude the systems, the white people, the industry, right? Um, that that make those hits possible, right? So, in some ways, going back to the earlier point, white people can find themselves in this book. They should, mm-hmm. because there is no experience of anti-black racism without the white person and the and the system of white supremacy making it possible. Right. So, you are actually present in the book. You might not like your part. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? And it's just like, and, and the reason that, you know, the, the thing about what I love about the book is the very way in which these sort of litanies that are laid out in the book are so mundane. They're so pedestrian and calm. And it's like, it, and if you read it as a black person, you're like, oh shit, like this is like the not spectacular mm-hmm. aggressions, right? It, you know, this is like the everyday shit that we, breathe in like air mm-hmm. and there's a way that she makes makes lays that bear so um so powerfully mm-hmm. that that is what jars me i mean it's a little shit like you know you walking down the street you look you know that that really haunts me um it, there's yeah. a, a quote go for I was it i just gonna say it's sort of something. like the christian cooper story right <laughs> like it's like that one didn't end in the police coming and hurting him. And so, and so that story, it gets to be something different. Right. But like, it's sort of like these little moments that we recognize as black people that we've experienced. I I don't know if you read cast. um, I've not gotten to it. Okay. Well, I have a lot of thoughts about it, but some of them are good and some of them are not. But one of the things she does throughout the book is she presents some of her experiences, Isabel Wilkerson, um, as these like little, little stories throughout the book. And I think that Claudia Rankin does that in this book so much better. It's like what she tried to do in cast and it didn't quite, 
um, land for me, but it lands in this, in this book, like Mm. these little stories, like you're like, oh yeah, I've been there. Oh yeah. Uh huh. Oh yeah, that too. And it's almost like everyone. Yeah, you're like, oh yeah, that one. You're like, oh, haven't had that one, but I, my brother had that one. Or like, you know, like it's like it's just like a it's like a bingo card. Like bingo, I got it. I've done all these. Um, I do want to talk about um, Black Lives Matter and sort of the the because so the book is kind of broken into these sections, and you know, there's like kind of like the Serena section. There's like the early, yeah. like I don't know, microaggression or like daily Seven aggression section. Yeah, and yeah. then there's this section that's sort of it's not all, um, it's it's scripts. Yeah, they're like they're like these little like scripts, and ones about Katrina, ones about Trayvon yeah. Martin, um, ones about the genocide. I don't know. I don't really have a question. I just I feel like that part. What she does there, at least for me, and what she does throughout the book, is that she draws really clear lines between all of these sections, basically saying that all of this is connected. Like your yeah. little microaggression that you that you experienced mm-hmm. or you perpetrated against me, depending on who the reader is, is connected to the murder of Trayvon Martin, is connected mm-hmm. to uh, yeah. Zidane Zidane's headbutt is connected mm-hmm. to Hurricane Katrina. And I, I don't think, I don't, I've never, I don't think it's done as well as she does it here often. I don't, I don't think it's as clear. Yeah. That's such a, a, a like, I, I love what you just, what you just named. I actually hadn't even thought about that um, because there are seven sections of the book that are not delineated mm-hmm. in that way. Um, so you're all, you, I think that that's right, that you're reading, um, are, are journeying through a connection between the everyday mundane ways in which we live our lives as, as, as folk within the U.S. context, whether you're Black or white or otherwise, in the context of sort of like anti-Black racism, right? Um, and these, what we might call microaggressions and how they feed or exacerbate or our response to consequence of systemic inequity. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Hurricane Katrina, natural disaster exacerbated by systemic inequity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Trayvon Martin, um, may he rest in peace, taken and snatched from his family, from his community, um, undergirded by systemic inequity that is present within our criminal <laughs> injustice system that allows for someone like Zimmerman to be set free, right? And we can go down the line with how what we might understand to be sort of like non-spectacular violences of telling a Black person that they might be, I don't know, let's say articulate, okay. because they, they're able to sort of um, speak in a certain way that registers with, with someone, how that is somehow not connected to Zimmerman being upheld in the public imagination as someone worthy of millions of dollars, um, you know, to be, to you know, that people raised to get him, to get him legal support. Right. Like those things are deeply connected. Right. Um, and I love that what she asked the reader to do, rather than give us the explanation, demand that the reader make good on what she, I think, has a faith in the reader to believe and at least understand and be true. Like, we, there's no way we can walk around here and act as if we don't know um, how this shit works, how racism works itself out on on behalf of white people um, and, and against everybody else. Like, I think she's asking or at least giving space for the reader to do that exploration on their own terms, to find themselves in the text, to unravel their fucking selves, to reckon with themselves. And, you know, in ways that, like, I, I think that this could have been done disingenuously where, um, you know, that there's this sort of, like, work to be done to for, where you're writing towards with the white gaze in mind. I don't, I didn't, I didn't get that. I didn't read, like, there, there was this sort of, like, um, this this very uh, generous reading for for white folks to find their way in it. I felt like in ways that Claudia Rankin may even say she may not know mm-hmm. or question mark when it, I actually feel like she does right. um, and she gets it and that she gets the black experience um, and white people are expected to show up in this in this reading to figure themselves out 
And I just want to read this, this quote from, you know, I can't, I told, we, we, when you interviewed me before, I mentioned Civil Wars by June Jordan. And in this one essay um, that she wrote in 1969, it's called Black Studies, Bringing, Black, um, Bringing Back the Person. There's this one quote that I love and it made me think about this book. Um, it is not that we believe only Black people can understand the Black experience. It is rather that we acknowledge the difference between reality and criticism as the difference between the host and the parasite. As France Fanon has written, the colonized man does not say he knows the truth. He is the truth. Mm -hmm. Likewise, we do not say we know the truth. We are the truth. We are the living Black experience, and therefore we are the primary sources of information. I'm like, if that's not what this book is about, right? Right. you know what I'm saying? Right. I'm like, that's it. Right. <laughs> Damn. Ain't that some shit? Mm -hmm. I'm like trying yeah. to, I'm trying to think. <laughs> I don't even, I don't know where we go. I mean, that's just so spot on. Ugh. Okay. I'm going to ask you this because I, I think that you're smart and I think that you might have an answer for me that I will think is acceptable. <laughs> I, I think about this question all the time and sometimes people give me shit for talking about this, but I think it's important and I don't care. So if you have a problem with me asking this question, don't just don't DM me about it, please. Get out of my DMs. <laughs> like truly, my DMs are a dumpster fire. Anyways, <laughs> one of the things that I'm always curious about as a black woman who creates, and you are a black man who creates lots of things, is how can we create away from the white gaze? G-A-Z-E. Mm -hmm. Can we or do we have to create with the white gaze and find ways to subvert it because the whiteness is the dominantness in our culture as of now? Listen, I don't know why people would be even DM DMing you around that. People get mad at, at me because they think I don't know what. Tell them to go talk. Go, tell them to go look to read some Toni Morrison. Well, that's why they get mad at me. They say people like t you wouldn't ask a white person this question. I'm like, yeah, because a white person wouldn't know the answer to this question. No, but I think it. I what I hear in the asking is um, a generous question. That is, as black creatives, how do we do the work yes. um, of resisting the white gaze? Yes. That it, it, I think that that's that's a question that we you know I don't I don't think it's about like you know how why would you not ask a yeah no I think it's right on and I, for me like when I wrote um, my book and this is as basic as possible I had in my imagination I would literally imagine that I was standing at the back of a theater the theater was dark there was a big screen. Um, there are probably, I don't know, maybe several roles. And in the middle of the theater, there was a little boy. That's from what I can assess, a, a young child who I'm gendering as a boy because he was sort of like imagining him to be me, whose back was toward me. And all that I ever saw was like this little black boy with this little knotty head like mine. And I would look at him and fix my gaze on him as I wrote. And even every time, like if I had any shift in my imagination, I would center and fix my imagination back on him. And that is who I wrote to. Mm. And that was a practical way for me to, to because I realized that I'm writing a book about a, a very particular sort of life um, in an industry that's dominated by white people, the publishing industry, that will have editors. My editor, I had a really good editor. Um, Katie O'Donnell, um, love her, white woman who respected my gaze, mm. who didn't demand that I sort of turn this very specific story into a universal one or create avenues for, say, the white person to find themselves on a page. Now, the reason why it's important to ask the question is because I think in this moment when editors within media, newspapers, publishing houses are asking Black writers to expand um, the sort of parameters of their imagination because the audience is so much wider than just the people that live in Camden where you're from, Darnell. Mm -hmm. We have to be ready to come up with strategies to, to push back against that. So when it came down to the review, the legal review of the book to make sure I'm going to get sued by people and shit, and the white woman from Texas, who I assumed was also straight, says to me, oh my God, I read your book and I related to so many parts and I go back to her, how? <laughs> Because I didn't write it for you. And I laughed. I'm like, I'm not even being smart. But like, 
I'm amazed that you found yourself in it. And she said, I did, reminded me about the power of singularity. You can find yourself as a human person in a story that is singular because there's humanity in it. This is why something like Moonlight did so well. It was about a very specific neighborhood in Miami. You ain't had to be from there, but somehow there was something about love and connection and intimacy that you still felt, even if you were not Black, even if you were not queer, even if you were not from that area, mm-hmm. in ways that Black people don't always get allowed to sort of do when we're in a space demanding of us to do what they don't demand of white people to do. You're not asking white people to think about people in Camden mm-hmm. when they're writing their stories. Right. So we do have to ask this question of ourselves as creatives. So the way that I say to that is be very vigilant about who we center in our imaginations as the audience and fight like hell to ensure that we can keep our gaze locked on them. Right. Do you ever struggle with that or do you find that it comes well, easily? Well, I know my audience, you know, I don't struggle now. Right. I, I think that um, I've put this into practice for some years mm-hmm. now, you know, like for, I don't care like what... Um, you know, I don't, it doesn't really matter where I write for now. <laughs> it's just like, I don't care what the outlet is. This is what, who I'm writing to. Mm-hmm. And um, you can accept that or not. Even if it's like a a, a a media outlet I'm writing to where that's sort of a wild, um, a wide white audience. I still, I still am very thoughtful about um, not writing to overwhelmingly do the work to appeal to that, to that, to that voice. Mm-hmm. And I'm very conscious of it. And one has to be conscious of it in order to sort of push back against it. Right. Okay. We're we're almost out of time, basically. I mean, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on or talk about before we wrap up, I should say? Um, No, I think this was good. This was like, first of all, I love every opportunity where I can like really talk about books in this way. Um, You can see I I nerd out quickly. Same. I created a whole Um, podcast to do this. This is my happy place. um, no, I love this, and I appreciate you um, to for creating space to love on on these books like this. Especially, I get to do that on the book that's the book of a black woman. So, well, thank you. I'm gonna just I, there's one thing that I think I, I stuck out. I'm gonna keep saying these. This is the one thing that stuck out to me. But one of the things that stuck out to me is this quote on page 135, which is right after mm. that list of names that we talked about earlier, where where it says, because white men can't police their imagination, black people are dying. And I think that that quote just, I mean, from day one, from moment one in America, that is the, I I mean, like, that's the truth of this country, like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, maybe, but because white men can't police their imagination, black people are dying a thousand percent. And and to to also offer to that right after that quote, um, the, it, about seventy five percent of that page then is all white. It, it, it's no more words on it. Mm-hmm. The next page is blank. Mm-hmm. So when when Tracy's talking about you have to actually pick up the book, that is such a strong indictment mm-hmm. of the consequence of white men not policing their imagination. The consequence of them not policing their imagination is invisibility, is death, right? It's gone. Right. And and you sit here and have to look at these blank two pages after and just like, damn. Right. Well, okay. This is the last thing I'm going to say. I just, it just clicked to me because you, when we were talking about the white gaze and being black creative and creating, one of the things you said was about, you know, focusing and expanding your imagination, you know, for, for our black selves, our black imaginations. And I think it's interesting that to create as a black person, there is sort of this like leaning in to this imagination and to like trusting this imagination mm-hmm. versus the opposite. What she's saying is white men need to start policing their imagination that like mm-hmm. the recklessness of the white male ima- imagination is death. Whereas the, the freedom of the black imagination is life or creation. I just think that's sort of an interesting thing to think about. It is. I guess we'll, I guess we'll leave it there. (laughs) Yes. Um, everyone, this is Darnell Moore. Please check out his book. We didn't even really do a full plug on the book, but we should, it's called no ashes in the fire. It's incredible. We talked about it a bunch last time he was here. So please go back and listen. If you haven't Darnell, thank you so, so much for being here. 
Thank you. Thank you for this. This did my heart good. I appreciate you and and love the stacks. Keep it up. Thank you. And everybody else, we will see you in the stack. Thank you all for listening. And thank you to Darnell Moore for being our guest. The Stacks Book Club pick for January 2021 is The Office of Historical Corrections by Danielle Evans. We will be discussing this book on Wednesday, January 27th, and you can tune in next week to find out who our guest is. Please make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite. And our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs>